A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And welcome to the Wednesday Night War Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamplett and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review the Wednesday Night War, and if you want to know our thoughts on NXT, that is available as a podcast right now. We also review Raw, SmackDown, pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz of course on WrestleCulture as I said though joined by Hamlet and Sidgwick to review AEW Dynamite a show that I enjoyed Sidge but that was all over the bloody place in my opinion what did you think of it? I really don't think it was that uneven I think the only thing that I didn't think was particularly great was thoroughly benign and very short elsewhere I thought this show was really hot Um, it answered questions that i had that were quite concerning um on another hot show last week all told i'm high as hell on this product again there's one direction that we ultimately got firmed up in the last two minutes of the show that i'm trying to think of the best analogy possible it's basically like expecting a fillet but getting a ribeye um so i really <laughs> can't complain i mean i can and i do think we're still possibly going to get blood and guts on telly I'm not letting that one die. I don't think it's been as sprawling as it has for no reason. And even if it has, while still disappointing, at least I got Phoenix being absolutely awesome in so many <laughs> main events. I, I think I'm somewhere in the middle of both of you, actually. I found this so eventful as to be quite, quite an enjoyable episode of a television show. And yet I know when we go through this piece by piece as we do, there's going to be things that I'm going to be finding fault with or things I didn't like. Um, so yeah, like a, like a kind of an entertaining block of a wrestling show with loads of stuff happening, but I'm yet to make up my mind on how focused it all feels. Um, probably by the end of the review, I'll have, I'll have kind of decided that. I, I, it just, yeah, I, I, I'm, it was weird, Wilborn, but I'm not so sure I'm saying that particularly critically you know 
like I, I think I enjoyed all of this, but it did. It, it did feel just, yeah, eventful. Lots, lots and lots of stuff to talk about from this one. Well, I guess let's get straight into it. We started uh, with, surprisingly, uh, Hangman Page and Matt Hardy versus TH2 uh, to open the show. A bit iffy with, you know, as Sidgwick has pointed out, Matt Hardy is not the wrestler he was five, 10, 15 years ago. Um, but Hangman Page is still spectacular. And they, they, I think they played it really well uh, in this with, with the way that it was, you know, Hardy mostly taking stuff and then hot tags to, to, to Page to take out and Helico and Jack Evans. Uh, at one point, Page goes, sets up for the bookshot lariat, but Hardy tags himself in. TH2 just take control then. Uh, Evans hits a Phoenix splash for a near fall. Hardy manages to get out of the way uh, of a four, standing 450. That means Page jumps in, hits a bookshot. Hardy hits a twist of fate and gets the pinfall. One, two, three. Post-match, Hardy grabs a mic, says, oh, Hangman Page, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't he look like a, a billion bucks rather than a million bucks? He said, I'm excited for you to make a lot of money because I'm going to get 30% of it. And Hangman Page went, yeah, you really didn't read that contract that we signed last week, did we? Uh, so out comes the Jacksonville Jaguars mascot, which gave, which popped me big because it reminded me of him eating a Judas effect uh, in Stadium Stampede. The mascot came out. The moment the mascot dabbed, I thought, right, someone's going down here. Uh, he brought out the uh, brought out the contract and revealed it's, as Matt Hardy re- read it, it's not for talent representation. It's for a match. Hangman Page versus Matt Hardy at Revolution with a stipulation that if Page wins, he gets all of Hardy's earnings for quarter one of 2021. And Hardy said, well, what about if I win, then I get your earnings for that same period. Page says yes, and then, of course, the mascot unmasks. It's Isaiah Cassidy. He attacks Hangman Page. Then TH2 joined the beatdown. But, thankfully, out come the Dark Order to make the save, including negative one. Uh, there's a bit with Alan Angels brawling with Hardy. He takes him out, but uh, gets out of the way because Hangman Page tries to bookshot Larry at Hardy. What do you think of this opening match and segment, Michael Sidgwick? For a destination, I'm still thoroughly unfussed about. I thought this journey was really, really, really well done. It was with incredible relief that it was revealed that everybody watches this TV show. That's great. Everyone should be watching this TV show. This isn't a sitcom where the characters are characters. This is meant to be a filmed live sports event or at least an emulation of it. There's never an excuse not to watch it. And thankfully, both Hangman Page and Matt Hardy have watched this show, which led to the reveal of Isaiah Cassidy as the mascot because Matt Hardy knew he'd been played, tried to play Hangman, but he's got friends and allies in the Dark Order. All of this is really well done. The quarter one earnings thing is a little bit cute, but I've got a little bit of respect for the pun. Big money match. I mean, that's just nice. That's cute. For undercard fare that I don't expect to go and I hope doesn't go any further than 12 minutes on the second match. It's nice enough, as we said, it informs the long haul of the Hangman Page arc. And even though I still don't have any particular high hopes for the match itself, there's one thrilling glimpse of actual chemistry in terms of how they construct this match. When Matt Hardy ducked out of the way of that bookshot lariat and just sprawled to the outside, like I thought he was a nanosecond away from getting his head taken off. <laughs> somehow stretch out that particular strain of drama for 12 minutes and give you the happy ending that Hangman Page's characters needed for a while. 
because I think a lot of people think that it's getting maybe a bit mopey. And by a lot of people, I mean Andy Murray. Um, <laughs> just that last glimpse of, oh, God, he's going to get his head took off, but it didn't quite happen. I think if they can do that in the, the guts of the match itself at Revolution, it might not be the very, very generous gentleman's three I expect to slap on it come March the 7th. Still don't think the match is going to be up to much, no. but this is all really quite nicely done. So I quite like the match and didn't particularly care for the afters. Um, I thought it didn't outstay its welcome, which is great. Um, I, I will share Sidgwick's sort of take on this chemistry of sorts between Hangman Page and Matt Hardy that will extend to their match. Um, I felt it at least, probably for the first time actually, um, in the match. I, I didn't like the afters at all. I, I'm completely with Sidgwick on the idea that you have to acknowledge that you're not idiots and you watch the show. Um, something this has happened in AW before, and I wish I had the example to hand, and I don't. Um, why did Hangman Page accept his end of the stipulation when he's gone to the trouble of drawing up the contract in the first place to get the get the W over Matt Hardy before the match itself? Like, what I know he's the babyface is this is a straightforward answer, mm-hmm. but he's got to bother. Like he's he's learnt from Brody Lee. He's had the papers, you know. That's that's the, this lovely little reference that ties him to Brody Lee. That also ties him to the Dark Order. He's had the papers drawn up, um, and then he just Matt Hardy says, "All right, I'll do it." But like this thing I've already signed. But you got to do this too. And he's gone, "Yeah, okay." Like I like this. There's probably a line where you've got to be patient with things just being pro wrestling for stakes and stuff. But I don't know. I, like I like holding them to a higher standard on little details like that, um, and I, that that. Like, well, I, mean, I guess, by the way, um, no Mark Quinn here. That was probably why the matches were changed. Like, generally, when you see somebody that's conspicuous by their absence now, yeah. um, I thought that was for the betterment of the show. When you look at, like, how the, the rest of the show played out, like, switching up the card was probably probably suited this Dynamite more without him there. Um, I, yeah, it was all a bit... Do you know what? I didn't like this more, having watched the whole show, because AEW have been so loyal to the clean finishes or the finishes at very least policy that they've become predictable in the post-match angles instead. And they need to address this. Was there four occurrences on one dynamite of the pinfall solves the match, the heels beat down the baby faces to set up an angle. I think there was, I think there was four or three at least. This was the first one. You had it with the um, young bucks and proud and powerful. You had it in the main event. And I think there's one I'm forgetting. FTR well. versus the side out brothers. Yeah. Um, great that you get in the finish, but then switch up the post match as well. Um, I wasn't as bothered by it here, but when we're thinking back now, when we've seen like three more occurrences of it, it's just and, and because, and I think it's probably because Hangman Page and Matt Hardy doesn't excite me as a singles match. Again, if you were dealing with wrestlers that had more to offer you on the night, this angle would probably be far more entertaining. We've seen them drag out far more stuff with the likes of Chris Jericho and MJF because there's just so much more investment in the end product. Um, I don't really have that for Hagman Page and Matt Hardy. It was it was perfectly it was perfectly cromulent. <laughs> it's a, like it's a standard that I'd kind of truthfully it's the sort of standard that I've kind of come to just expect from this kind of like lame duck NXT at the moment, <laughs> but very little, very little more than that. Uh, then we got a backstage interview, uh, Marvez with uh, Santana and Ortiz ahead of their title shot later on, of course, flanked by the entire inner circle. They said, basically, it's taken this long for them to get a title shot because everyone's scared of them. Yeah, 
probably. Um, uh, MJF starts cutting down Sammy Guevara, saying he crossed the line last week, which he did, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and then Jericho tells him to shut up because he, everyone watched him do what he did and goad Guevara. And they sort of, you know, tried to tie up that whole, wait, there's a cameraman, so surely Jericho would have found out of it anyway. He said, this is MJF's fault. But then he said, it's also Guevara's fault. And when you walk out in the inner circle, you walk out in Chris Jericho, Guevara is dead to him. And he announced that Santana and Ortiz would win the tag titles later on tonight. Next up, it was Riho versus Serena Deeb. I have to say, Michael Hamplot, what was it? 40 odd weeks, they said on commentary. So good to see Riho back in AEW. Amazing. Um, Her reaction, although all reactions, um, you know, uh, like quietened by the fact that there's just not that many people in buildings when you are seeing and hearing fans at shows hers felt like a louder pop hers felt like an actual return pop there was such an atmosphere and energy around a music hitting um that you could feel and it just i thought it traveled through the whole of this fantastic match i couldn't have loved this anymore my favorite thing on dynamite um completely played up to i believe the fairly high expectations we set on the preview that this could be one of the best mm-hmm. uh, aw women's matches ever i think it was and I think they're on a run of those as well. Um, it got absolutely loads of time. It's in a far better spot. Yeah. This American leg of this tournament is already proven uh, to just be so helpful in continuing this effort, this conscious they're clearly making to try and reheat and restart this women's division. Um, the chemistry between them was just perfect. I, I cannot wait for, I've got like what, 15 minutes here and I already can't wait for a rematch. They mesh so well. Um Serena Deeb can pretzel somebody like Riho. Uh, again, as we kind of like talked about yesterday, Deeb gets to not be a physical giant, but wrestle like a giant because of her style contrasting with Riho's size. I thought they just worked so amazingly well together. I want to watch like, I want to watch a five minute stretch muffler sequence. Yes. Because I just, I just believe the suffering of it so much. Um, sublime stuff. The triumph you would have hoped for but considering Rio's potential rust and the unknown dynamic, it might not have been as great as it was. This was capital G great. Yeah, before I get your thoughts on it, Sid, I'll just run through the conclusion to the match. At one point, they're outside the ring. Riho brings Deeb back in, but Deeb catches her with a dragon screw. Uh, powerbomb, that stretch muffler. Yeah, I love that. Riho counters that for cradle for a two count. Then we get a Northern Light suplex from Riho. Uh, diving foot stomp for a really, in, really close near fall. Uh, then Deeb sort of reverses after an attempt at a running knee strike. Deeb talks, she goes for, then it's into a cradle exchange, which Riho successfully wins. She pins Serena Deeb. She'll face, oh, how mouthwatering is this? Thunder Rosa in the next round. But yeah, as I said, Ham, uh, as I said to Hamlet Sidge, just so, so good to see Riho back on Dynamite. Yeah, I've been wanting this since the whole pandemic started. Like Riho was amazing in the early months of AEW and she was yet again amazing here tonight. Um, What was strange about this match is that for 10 minutes, as much as I was into it, Serena Deeb's knee injury was almost distracting at points. I couldn't tell if it was just a phenomenal sell job or just an incredible display of guts. In any event, that informed the last five minutes absolutely wonderfully. Um, I will never, ever do this lightly, but I'm going to create a comparison between um, Serena Deeb and Hiroshi Tanahashi. Obviously, there's an on-the-nose element because she was doing the dragon screws to great effect. Um, she did a twist and shout as well. Like, she's clearly influenced by him, but it in no way feels like an imitation. And I cannot think. Like, Hiroshi Tanahashi is on my Mount Rushmore. It's Kenny Omega, Daniel Bryan, 
Bret Hart and Hiroshi Tanahashi. And she did a match in the style of Hiroshi Tanahashi. And it was absolutely blinding. It never once felt like she was just doing Tanahashi's bit in the same kind of sense that someone like a Buddy Murphy does a Kenny Omega bit. Never once resonated like that. The last five minutes of this were absolutely incredible. The idea to work the double injury angle and to create just this incredible parity um, to yet again use another incredibly lofty comparison, which this match earned, felt a lot like the Misawa Kabashi match of 1997. Obviously not in the same league, but again, nowhere near an imitation, just fell gloriously in the middle for a TV match. And this is fantastic. I tweeted yesterday and we talked at length in the preview about how the bridging pin was going to be great. It was. Yeah. I was also desperate and I knew they were going to do this and they did it phenomenally well for the idea of Riho never being able to leave her feet because she'd been smothered so much by Deeb's incredible technicality. The idea that the already awesome diving double foot stomp was going to look even better because she finally was able to escape. Mm. Looked awesome. Um, the frantic near falls at the finish were great. I was on the hook because, as we said on the preview yesterday, this is one of those AEW specials where they pit two performers against each other and you think, well, this is high-stakes drama. Mm. They're both protected. Neither can afford to lose. That never works out that way. Everyone's always fine ordinarily. But those last two minutes, I just did not know who was going to win. No. I was completely on the hook. All of the exchange was just so well worked. Every kick out was just at that lovely 2.9 spot. This is great. I can't wait to watch this back because, as I said, I was removed a little bit during those first 10 minutes when I thought, is she actually going to be able to continue here? And I just think it'll be such a more rewarding um, mm. rewatch. And that's the, the hallmark of a great match, ultimately. You want to watch it again. Yeah, real highlight of the show. Uh, and, and and like we said, Thunder Rose and Hext. It's like, oh, okay. I guess Rhea really is back. Um, uh, this was where the show took a turn a little bit for me before we even get to Orange Cassidy versus Luther. The video package with Jade Cargill. Jade Cargill looks incredible, don't get me wrong. And I realise why they did what they did with this. But I watched it her and Shaq training ahead of March 3rd and thought, well, that's great. If they're going to have a basketball match, I, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't know what they should have done. And I know they've done stuff with Jay before. And I enjoyed that. I think last week it was this, this just didn't really do it for me, Sige. No, the idea is that you're meant to think that Shaq can transfer his skills to the pro wrestling arena because he's an absolute hoss of an athlete and you literally didn't get it in this case. He was playing basketball. Yeah. It was, it's always a good idea to show off that incredible physique. And one of my favorite words of all time, that physique. I think it's just my old Coliseum video head just yeah. rearing. Physique. What a physique she has. Um, but this didn't make me think that um, Red Velvet or Cody were in any particular danger. That's what I wanted to be conveyed here. I wanted that little bit of reassurance that this is not going to be the train wreck that I can only kind of forecast it to be at this point, given that there's only one proper worker in this match. Um, I wanted to get hyped for a wrestling match. Didn't do it. I also wanted to be reassured that a wrestling match could actually be viable. This didn't do it. It was a weird photo shoot. We, we did a podcast yesterday, me and Michael Hamlet talking about our, worst wrestling nightmares right now well worth checking out what culture wrestling wherever you get your podcast from and one of the things we talked about hamlet was 
um, I don't want it to, but we're really worried that Shaq in AW is going to suck. Did this help your mood any more with that? No, um, but my attitude on this match has changed after this episode of Dynamite anyway. I think I'm all for, you know, that it's sometimes probably just my own headcanon, but I'm all for sometimes some messaging coming through about things from AW because I do believe they put a great deal of thought into as much as they possibly can. Um, I, I like to believe that a lot like stuff just isn't tossed off, even if it kind of looks that way after the fact. Um, we had Shaq like throwing the basketball around a bit tonight with Jade Cargill, who we know to be this in her prime super athlete at present. Uh, and we had Cody celebrating the news with Brandy and looking anything but focused on this Shaq match and um, booked in a ladder match for a revolution with TNT title stakes. I felt like this was the night they outwardly told us to not get too hyped for Cody versus Shaq to enjoy the novelty of a photo opportunity of a, of a headlock, basically, of, you know, Shaq grabbing a hold on Cody for ESPN to get a couple of glamour shots and then for Red Velvet and Jade Cargill to be the ones doing the work for their, for them to have the shine in this match. The whole, this plus the Cody and Brandy stuff felt like a conscious effort to lower everybody's expectations of what you're going to get out of the men in this match. Mm. Um, and, you know, if Cody's going to be working hurt, is that, is that injury a work or not? I don't know. But, like, if Cody's working even slightly hurt, that's going to damage already a match that feels a little bit snake bit. Um, might be a generous take that, but this is probably the time for people to measure the expectations of what they're going to expect from Cody versus Shaq and maybe turn the volume up on what you might get from Jade Cargill and Red Velvet instead. Those two segments happened on the same show felt like a conscious effort to, to do that and rethink maybe what we originally thought about what this tag match could be. It's a, it's a good job they uh, they took the L in terms of in terms of that as well this week because the real celebrity wrestling star returned to TV this week and he was over on NXT. But we'll talk about that on the NXT review podcast. Let's talk about the most inconsequential moments of the Wednesday Night War this week. Orange Cassidy versus Luther. We had a conversation about this going, oh, they've announced this last minute before the show. What's the point in this? And then it happened. And I sort of understand the bigger picture of Luther's big, Miro's big, and Orange Cassidy just beat him. But this was nothing. This was just, I don't know what this was, Hamlet. Were we witnessing the business of the wrestling business here? Um, that late announcement for Orange Cassidy versus Luther was in a tweet where AEW were trying to flog some last-minute tickets to Daly's place. Um, was this leveraged because Orange Cassidy is a ticket-selling draw? Was it included on Dynamite because he's a proven ratings draw? And will tomorrow, or in the days that follow, a figure about the attendance in Daly's place or this particular quarter hour justify this match existing? Mm. I know that's not particularly good storyline analysis, or that's not us talking about the art, but I cannot fathom another reason why this existed the way it did otherwise. Like, if those two things happened, then there's your business argument. It's boring. I'm sorry. It's not, some, it's, it's not the kind of stuff we'd like to give... I don't know, raw a pass on when it's like, well, you've got to do these quarter hours because it turns out this company makes a billion dollars. So you're wrong for hating it. You know, <laughs> but like, so I can't analyze the art, but I wasn't given any art to analyze. So I have to assume it's for those reasons. Yeah, this is, on one hand, I thought thoroughly harmless. Thank Christ it went as briefly as it did. But at the same time, I really think these crucial minutes wasted, there's no other word, the crucial minutes wasted here could have really added more heft to the Young Bucks versus Santa, Santana and Ortiz. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like it was a little bit more 
um, bad than a waste of time. But at the same time, I was kind of dreading this going even vaguely competitive. So um, I just don't know the extent to which I should feel annoyed by it, um, realistically. I watched this thing, as I've said countless times before, at a ridiculously early time. I'm just waking up at a time that no person should wake up. Did they even make explicit the parallel between Luther and Miro? Right? He's being haunted by Miro, but he's showing here that he can beat quite handily someone his size. I, did, I didn't pick it up if they did, but no, they no, me. I was half asleep too. Nor me. That was the only, and it's still a very dry and functional reason for this match to happen. It had no storyline going into it, um, no storyline development after it. Um, all incredibly odd. I just think it was a weird formatting error where at some point they've realised, hang on, we need to fill up five minutes. And it's like, well, give it, give it to the match that yeah. needed it. Yeah. <laughs> odd. Uh, in the match, well, Luther came out, knocked Chuck Taylor off the aprons of Pentago. Tope suicided onto him. Then uh, Luther hits a huge power bomb on Cassidy for a two count. Takes, rips his shirt off, goes to the apron. Uh, Cassidy power bombs Luther onto the floor. So Pentago looks like he's going to go after him mid match. Okay, uh, but Taylor hits him with the uh, awful waffle, and then Cassidy hits the orange punts on Luther for the quick win. Let's move on. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Before we go any further, though, this podcast is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you've got no idea where it's going? Well, it's all those subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it is endless. I'm guilty of this, so I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was more shocking than a wrestling betrayal. You see, Rocket Money is a personal 
personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. That's rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Let's move on to it getting good again, basically, in my eyes. Taz, Brian Cage, and Hook came out, and you, I was just like, back in the game, baby. He came out, and he basically just took the piss out of the fact that, that AW were like, oh, yeah, Sting's going to call out Team Taz. And he was like, bollocks that. We're here first. Uh, although, you know, the, the piece that is uh, Ricky Starks and her powerhouse Hobbs were out due to the weather, which he also blamed on Sting, which just fantastic. <laughs> so they, they challenged Sting to, to come out. Uh, he makes his entrance. He comes out with the bat in his hand. Uh, he gets in there. It's obviously three on one. Taz says, that's the worst thing you could have done. Without that bat, you are done. And Sting drops the bat and sort of says, let's have it out then. Takes off his coat, attacks Brian Cage. Hook gets the bat and sort of hook, and ironically hooks it around uh, Sting to try and get him off. Sting turns around, lays him out. And then Michael Sidgwick, Brian Cage, welcome back to the squared circle. Powerbomb Sting. And it wasn't, I'm not saying it was, you know, deliberately harsh, but it wasn't gentle, was it? This power bomb. What I loved about this, right? I've been waiting to feel something for this program. I've, we've talked at length about how, if you can trace it all the way back to April, 2020, how it's folded in the creation of this awesome new stable, how the individual TV matches that have built towards this upcoming street fight were all fantastic. The mic work's been great. But recently it feels like, right, okay, everything's been established. Dynamic as great as it is, as sprawling as it is, we are ready for the match. And the Invisible Wall has made me think less of the team that I need to feel are a credible threat. Yada, yada, yada. Even though we got the entrance that I did not want, the idea of staying waiting for his music cue when his mate's brain has been smeared across tarmac, not ideal optics, and yet... I watched this segment with my mouth agape at what the heels had actually done. Yeah. That's what you want. Like, that's what you want from a heat angle. That's what you ultimately want from pro wrestling. I watched this open mouthed thinking, what have you done? Is the baby face okay? I understand that. Right. Sting's like 61, 62. in his early 60s. It's not like the great fiction of selling that you want to have the plight for the baby face. I'm thinking, Christ, is your spinal stenosis okay? Because you look like you just got murdered. Mm. But hey, whichever way you can deliver that feeling to me, I will receive that feeling gladly. I felt this bloke is in danger. That bump looked horrific. He can do something at the pay-per-view. I've got my glimpse of that, and I actually want to see him do it now. Amazing. I, I love this. Needed to see yeah. battered old man get battered. <laughs> yeah totally agree um because it is about it, this was a big one for feeling not thinking wasn't it for the first time probably in this storyline like what feels like a weekly complaint of mine has been well i'm back in team taz they're funnier they're cooler they're harder yes they're standing back now but they're gonna like it's an old guy and a skinny kid 
these people are monsters and they're going to monster the old guy and the skinny kid. And I watched it happen. I was like, oh God, don't monster the old guy. Where's the skinny kid? Where's the, where's the skinny kid to save the old guy? And like it flipped it all, all in one segment. It totally flipped it. It was great. It was absolutely fantastic. It reminded me, Sting is 61. Um, there was that moment before WrestleMania 13 when Bret Hart punched Pat Patterson square in the face long before the Stooges were just there to be abused by Steve Austin. Vince McMahon was incandescent with rage. Bret Hart really had snapped that he'd punched Pat Patterson in the face. That Pat Patterson was five years younger than Sting is now, and it was one forearm to the head. Like, how dare Bret raise a hand to this old legend? Brian Cage nearly put Sting through the canvas. Like, <laughs> just absolutely drove him. And again, like, this is that sort of thing where, you know, there's a lot of... I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it sometimes. I've, I've got like a certain limit of how much I want to see people endure things. And like, I should, should I be a bit thinking like Sting, you're 61, but then you get bollocked for being you know, safety police or whatever, because you don't want to see people's bodies crumble to I don't want to see Sting's legs look like they did against Seth Rollins that mm. time. I never want to see something like that again. Um, so you just got to hope that this soft spot turns out all right, because Sting was clearly game to take it. The violence was all by intent. It sort of had to be, you felt that was part of this. The, the kind of all of us begging for Darby Allen to come and make the save. Um, so, yeah, and I think even the choice of only having Brian Cage out there, you all mentioned about no Ricky Starks. Maybe it was weather, you know, or maybe maybe they actually looked and they thought, this is the least fun version of Team Taz. <laughs> Powerhouse, Powerhouse Hobbs has got a cult following. Like, look at him, he's class. Ricky Starks pops the boys. Brian Cage is just mean and a giant. Like, he's an enormous like just human gorilla of a man and like hook is so far this kind of little miniature assassin type figure they're the least fun version of team taz so all the cruelty was ratcheted up here as well thought this was outstanding best part of this storyline so far what else was outstanding about this is that they've through messaging throughout the media where they've all but said it's probably going to be cinematic in our understanding of everything that's happened to sting was just manipulated gorgeously here. Everyone's understanding was he can't take a bump. He won't take a bump. They are going to do something cinematic or cinematic adjacent to obscure the fact that he can't take a bump. And they bumped him by Brian Cage. <laughs> like all of those weeks where we sat through it and we were like, right, okay, we get it, we get it, we get it. Of that invisible wall being formed, doubled as two things. One, it tried to get over the mystique of Sting. Two, it made you think he's not getting touched. He's not getting touched. This was brilliant on an old school heat angle level kind of way, but also on a meta level mm. where they took our understanding and subverted it magnificently with a killer transgression of a bump. Talk about, talk about throwing him in at the deep end. So you're going to try and be your first bump tonight. Like you say, it's going to be a power bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and he's probably not, not going to hold back. Will clone next. Oh. <laughs> uh, also, quick side note, and this is not me having to go at AEW or NXT, but why can't people do kidnappings properly anymore? I realise that might sound slightly problematic and <laughs> that's isolated. I mean, in Cape because, like, obviously, you know, Darby wasn't there, but that probably be more because he was dragged behind a sodding car, not because he was still kidnapped, because that was not even referenced. Marco Stunt's just back out and about fine. And then on NXT, Austin Theory just was easily found in the back of a van. It's, it's not the same. It's not like the good old days, is it, Hamlet? I just, I, I, 
don't necessarily think the wrestling promotions need to lean on kidnappings as no, much as they seem to not, do yeah. at the moment. I think that's the bigger picture. Like the bigger because like if they can't be asked to do the like the cartoonish follow-up, especially in a crowdless time where you kind of need bigger messaging like that, maybe steer away from kidnappings in general. They could have simply inserted one throwaway line on commentary, fed a commentator to say, um, quick medical update on Darby Allen. He's not mm. cleared. Um, he's recovering. His brains are getting injected back into his head. He was found. Just a little <laughs> something really awful. Like he was, he was found by the side of a road. Yes, like that tells all the story, doesn't it, of what happened to him? Just a little detail, and it's the sort you'd expect AEW to put in. To be honest, from over the night came next for me. Eddie Kingston is just sensational. Uh, he basically runs through his opponents, Archer, Phoenix, Moxley, for later on, and talks about his history with all of them. Uh, said the only way he could get rid of Moxie was through beating him. But that line where he said, I've tried booze, I've tried pills, I've tried women, I just can't get get you out of my head sort of thing, I thought was spectacular, Sige. Yeah, I look, the thing about Eddie Kingston is that at this point in his life, he'd like to think that he's a very well-adjusted bloke. Um, he's got over the tribulations of the indie era he came up in. He seems like he's got a nice payday now. And yet he's so authentic and he radiates an energy that just does not exist anywhere else in pro wrestling. So when he says that he's this effective junkie chasing the dragon of beating John Moxley, you can yeah. believe it. Yeah. It feels like skeevy and everything. A great promo from a great promo. Like th- how this set up whatever's going to happen between Phoenix and Penta as well. Like this felt like it was giving me what I want. Like... They don't want Phoenix. They just wanted Penta all along. He's drive. He's trying to drive that wedge. Might that even work? Because I want Penta as the heel anyway. And there's few people as a way to get over Penta as a heel beat, better beaten up than Phoenix as well. Like I, like I like that little wrinkle for what's probably next for Eddie Kingston and more importantly, next for Penta and Phoenix in a way that makes the most of them. We're getting all these incredible standout performances from Phoenix that seem so well set up to like have one of your next great babyface world title contenders in Ray Phoenix, um, make Penta the heel equivalent, make him a, a very, very, very dangerous man to be around. King, like a perfect, perfect chemistry with uh, Eddie Kingston as well. Uh, next up, we caught up with WWE champion Kenny Omega <laughs> at preschool. <laughs> it was a mistake. I don't, I'm not going to get to go too hard on it. Sid, you're shaking your head. Well, just run through it and I'll tell you why it was great. Simple as. I meant the mistake by, by Jim Ross, not... not oh, me. right, I thought you meant this one. The segment in itself, because you didn't like it, did you, Will? No, I was, I'm surprisingly, you two are, are big fans of it. I just wasn't wasn't too mm. keen on it. I think, do you know what, I've, I've worked it out, I rewatched it after you two said, you know, you, you enjoyed it, and I'm wrong, basically. And I think what it is, is it's <laughs> really pissed off with Marvez because clearly Omega's trying to address a class. Marvez just walks in like, sorry, can I just have a quick piss off, Marvez, you idiot. Uh, so any Kenny, Kenny Omega is speaking uh, preschool. Uh, he is reading the reading a book to the children. Uh, the, the young books is killing the business. Uh, before he starts reading, he takes takes questions from them. He asks if they've heard of the young books. Someone asks if if uh, they love each other. <laughs> he, he sort of goes, uh, I mean, they're brothers. It looks that way, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> uh, and he reads a, a sentence, basically putting himself over it, <laughs> saying, 
uh, when when Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho faced off against each other in New Japan, was it drastically? He said business drastically. drastically yeah. Do you know what drastically <laughs> means, kids? Explained what drastically meant, uh, and then immediately went, and that's our time. Better go, better go. They do a Kenny chant, and he's he's loving it. Uh, the kids kids ask. Uh, if they, if they can play their mega, but Callis just who's ridiculously fake tanned at this point, by the way, says, "Oh, I'm sorry, we can't." I will admit, upon rewatching, I didn't catch this the first time. Callis's line, and as much as it's you know inside baseball and what have you, his oh, really doing well in the five to nine demographic. But they went, "Don't worry, you can't play with Omega." But Michael Nakazawa's here; you can play with him. And they just said, "We hate Michael Nakazawa." Someone kicked him. <laughs> Sage, why did you like this so much? Because it was absolutely fantastic on multiple levels. There was, in fact, one single sole level at which this didn't succeed. And it's why is this on dynamite? Realistically, why is it on dynamite? <laughs> the reason why it's because it was piss funny. That's why it's on dynamite. So I will give it a pass. My God. Right. Take a step back and just think of why he was in a school. <laughs> he went to a school elementary kids which is so much funnier than high school kids by the way to read one line from his mate's document uh, biography autobiography that has nothing to do with his mates that tacitly buries his mate and overtly buries new japan pro wrestling to further two subplots in this great narrative he's plotting the main beat of which was told in the main event just the idea that he literally went to an elementary school and I'll tell you what, I needed to see that goddamn wristband on Michael Nakazawa because he shouldn't be interacting with kids during a pandemic. But I saw the wristband and I needed that. To, all right, okay, they were tested before this segment. Thank Christ. The idea is that he's gone to a school to read one sentence from an autobiography to put himself over. It's such a wonderfully absurd gag that I pissed myself. The actual one sentence did two things. It was the Young Bucks autobiography. Nice and care. The line he picked was to put himself over. That's fantastic. Because the idea is they are fracturing apart Bucks and Omega. And he also, to further very gently the Forbidden, store, forbidden Door storyline, just said, well, I'm the reason for New Japan Pro Wrestling's success. And in- I drastically improved the business in the West that they would not have done without me, the great Kenny Omega. And he sort of inferred that the young books love themselves by that. Uh, that's what I took from that. Of like, oh, do they love each other? Are oh, their brothers love each other? And he saw, I, I took, and they kind of love themselves a little bit if you look at that front cover. Just, I was popping my tits off all the way through this. Absolutely, fantastically irreverent and economical comedy. Yeah, I thought this was really, really funny. Um, I, li- I like the, the, the idea that, I'll tell you what, like, I like this, right? But it comes with a bit of a criticism. So I love, now that the forbidden door has swung open, he has just shouted through that door to Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kazuka Okada that they had nothing to do with the success of New Japan. Like, you just scream that through that door. That's brilliant. However, I don't think that's an interesting justification for why Okada should come to AEW. Like... I don't want Okada to come to AEW to get Kenny Omega because Kenny Omega said that he was better for business in New Japan than Okada. I want Okada to come to get Kenny Omega to get Kenny Omega to wrestle him for a title. You know, I want stuff to happen within pro wrestling, not to happen within 
like that, like talking about business. I was like, like, I drew more money than you. I, 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 it's a little bit WWE for me, that. Like, that's the stuff that they believe to be important rather than belts and stakes in pro wrestling drama. I think it's a great character beat from this Kenny Omega character. I think it's the exact sort of thing that Don Callis would encourage Kenny Omega to do. So I don't think it betrays the storyline of what they're doing with Kenny, particularly. Um, and that line about their five to nine demographic, again, piss funny, like completely speaks to this Kenny character. Kenny Omega is doing more and more stuff with a camera in front of him that the Young Bucks should have given up on him by now. I, I, I still feel like I'm being asked a bit much to, like, you know, we're going to get onto more of this. Um, like, at what point are they just going to say, like, enough's enough? At what point are they just going to snap on him? Like, the, the, the kind of the, the relationship was frayed anyway. Kenny got in the ring with them when they won the tag belts in this last attempt to freeze Hangman Page out and get them on his side when, you know, Page was there in the background and all that sort of stuff. And then he pulled himself away from them again. I'm going to have to go do things my own way. going to have to do things. And then he was like, no, I want to be friends again, all that sort of stuff. They should know by now. Like, just kick him in the face. Like, kick Kenny Omega in the face like you would anybody that is causing you grief. Like, I, ju I just think that, like, this and what we got later on, has stretched it past the point that I'm willing to believe that Young Bucks wouldn't be taking an action. But Kenny Omega isn't just someone who's grating on them or pissing them off. Alongside Kenny Omega, they did something that no other wrestling act has done for 20 years. Like that bond is ridiculously forged at this point to such an extent that I will go with them every step of the way. Yeah, yeah. no, that's fair enough. That's that. Like, I, I do get it. I like. I, I buy the bond. I just, it's that thing of like, you know, like the the more that this stuff appears on Dynamite rather than, say, being the elite, the more that it just, the wedge should be deeper by now. But I, I can appreciate that as a counter-argument to that as well. You've won me over with the analysis of that segment. Oh, yeah, let's, let's move on. Let's move on to the... That's why he pays me the big bucks. That's <laughs> why he pays me the big bucks, you understand? Um, let's move on, because that was immediately followed by the Young Bucks defending those tag team titles against Santana and Ortiz. They did a little bit where... Omega, Callis and the Good Brothers were showing backstage, watching TV in a weird way. Um, but the match itself was, was just great. Uh, early on, uh, Santana Ortiz hit a drop, huge drop kick on Matt. MJF tries to get involved. Gets everyone sent backstage. Whoops. Or is it a whoops? Anyway, um, Matt uh, goes, well, later on in the match, Matt stops himself from being double suplexed, puts Santana in the electric chair, doomsday device uh, by the books. They hit that buckle, buckle bomb and Segori combination, super kicks, uh, but then Ortiz dies in to break up the pinfall. They set up for the BTE trigger, but uh, they get out, he gets out of the way. They hit their knees. Santana hits a double cutter, and then they hit the sw street sweeper, where I 100% Michael Sidgwick bought on that count because Nick dies in at 2.999, it felt like. Um in the end, as a result of that, Santana and Ortiz powerbomb Matt into the crowd. I'm fairly certain right next to the book's parents, like two people to the to the right-hand side of it, basically. Uh, but when Ortiz climbs back into the ring, Nick cradles, his hit, cradles him. There's a great uh, shot. I think it's on Sidgwick's Twitter, actually, I even saw, at M. Sidgwick, of Ortiz's face immediately after he got caught by that cradle. This isn't, you know the WWE Raw surprise roll-up thing that they do a million times. It, it was effective here. Uh, but post-match, uh, down come the inner circle to jump them. And 
the Good Brothers and, and Omega and Callis are like, we should go and help them, but are deliberately sort of doing it far too slowly whilst inevitably, you know, if you're fans of the Young Bucks, you're screaming, help them, because they're just beating the crap out of them. Uh, Brandon Cutler tries to make the save. He doesn't, surprisingly, uh, because Jake Hager murders him on the ramp. Uh, they both get submissions, Jericho and MJF, ahead of their uh, tag team title match, of course, uh, at Revolution. Both gets their signature submissions on the books. And then finally, the Good Brothers run out and don't really attack Jericho and MJF because they bail. They just sort of go, whoa, that was a close one. And uh, Jericho and MJF get in the face of the book's parents and Papa Book assaults Chris Jericho, which is just outrageous, If, in my opinion. They should be charged criminally. They should be charged for for, for what they did to, to Jericho and the, the, the needless fear they put into MJF. But regardless of that, uh, let's talk about the match. Hamlet, what did you think of it? Tremendous. Really, really good. Um, completely with you on that near fall at the end as well. Um, totally bit because this this was just good booking, wasn't it? This set up um, a very believable title change here. This was far more than a pre-pay-per-view hurdle. Um, if anything, the title change started to make more sense the more you thought about it. Um, especially for me personally, especially when the inner circle got ejected. That is very much one of those, oh, the plot thickens wrestling devices. But I actually thought they were going to subvert that with Santana Ortiz winning by themselves because that's kind of what they're there to prove anyway, that they can do this by themselves, that the inner circle have become so much of an inconvenience that they haven't even realised just what they can achieve without them. As great as that was in servicing MJF's attempt to sabotage or make a mess with the inner circle or whatever that was, what it made... On it, or, or indeed an honest mistake, far be it for me to question the journalistic integrity usually exhibited on this podcast. Um, yeah, I thought it like made the drama even better. Really tremendous young books, proud and powerful television match. Um, I liked the closing angle with Papa Book because it was, I thought it was quite smooth to move on to something to talk about for what's now the revolution tag match. Um, it would have been easy to have that almost get lost a little bit because of the big angle happening with Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers, because of the match that we'd just seen before and this earnest attempt through the course of a wrestling match to get Santana on Ortiz over again as, as a force because they've just been bystanders, they've been background players for so long. I thought it was quite economical for them to be able to factor in that little thing with Papa Buck at the end so that next week the Young Bucks are so full of hell for Chris Jericho that they've not even got time to concentrate on how late the Good Brothers were making the save. They're going to be so tunnel-visioned about revelation. You put your hands on my dad, that's not on. See you in two weeks. That the Good Brothers can kind of like get away with this transgression here. So end-to-end, I thought this was superb stuff. Um, yeah, the, this is where I suppose I contradict myself. I can almost forgive this. Kenny Omega and the young bo- uh, Good Brothers are late to the running more than I can Kenny's reading of the book in the school. This was deft. In terms of everything they did around the inner circle and how it parlayed into the drama, it was just so incredibly deft. If I've got one minor criticism, and it's just, it feels very petty and spoiled. Like, I was expecting a four and a half star Hmm. Young Bucks match wrapped around all this incredible drama. I don't think it quite hit that height, but that's just the, the standard that the books have set for themselves. It was still an excellent very good to excellent TV match, but ultimately I think the quality of it um, didn't need to be there. It would have been nice, and I kind of expected it to be, but no, just everything was great. My favourite thing about it, and as I've been waiting for this for so long, 
from Santana and Ortiz. Like the, the threat of the MGF stuff was yet again fantastic. We know exactly what he's doing and he does it so subtly that it's not too obvious to everybody else at this point. Just a phenomenal story beat. And what I liked about the inner circle not being there is that it allowed the thing that I most wanted from this match to surface, and indeed it did. Santana and Ortiz, I'm telling you, are going to be the baby faces of this tag team division. I said it all the way back on the countdown to 2019 full gear. They are a killer baby face act. When they had that, we didn't really talk about it, but that earlier segment, that promo segment with the inner circle was quietly fantastic, just exuding amazing badass baby face energy from Santana and Ortiz. MGF kind of clued people into what exactly he was trying to do to Sammy Guevara, i.e. depict him as a lunatic. But the idea that Santana and Ortiz had to go it alone, in the very second they started getting arrogant and hubristic and shouting, we're the best, and then they got cradled by the team who are in actual fact the best. The, the look on Ortiz's face mm. was just incredible. It wasn't that melodramatic WrestleMania 25 cliche of shock that man looked despondent that man looked with a single subtle facial expression that was captured for all of two seconds like he'd had it's an epiphany of sorts like i just made a complete mug of myself there and for what look how close we were look at that near fall which obviously i echo your opinion took my breath away in fact it went nose to nose with that feeling of they botched it and then when you realize they haven't it just becomes even better seconds later but that look on Ortiz's face was absolutely expert and it again reinforced my opinion that they're going to be incredible baby faces what a brilliant expression from a sympathetic human being who realized that's not the way not the way like a change is needed and I've been waiting for that from them too in particular for months as part of the storyline could not have loved this actually I could have loved it more I expected a four and a half star match and yeah. got a three, three. but other than that, I could not have loved this more. I uh, I forgot to mention as well in that backstage promo earlier, the only thing JK said was championships, yeah, which did pop me. <laughs> uh, so I did enjoy that. But yeah, it was some great stuff. Even the double tap out spot, which I know why they did it broadly, was right, quick, quick, quick. We've got a pay-per-view match that's as important as all this in the long term to sell in the short term. The slightest echo of FTR again put into my mind that this is all intimately connected and wonderful with that DIY tap out adjacent spot. Uh, next up was a segment that I, I'm very happy for them, but I thought was very self-indulgent. But now Hamlet has explained the bigger picture with the, the Shaq match. It actually makes a lot more sense to me. There was a video of Brandy Rhodes talking about how only she knows the gender of their baby and they're going to do a gender reveal announcement. Cody and Brandy come out, pink pyro. It's a girl, which of course it was going to be a girl. Michael Hamlet, the dad's two boys. Michael Sidgwick, the dad to a boy and a girl. Which way is that going to go to, in terms of enforcing more division between the, the two of you? <laughs> um, but yeah, like fantastic news and a nice way to segue into to, to Cody on commentary. I just thought it was a bit much. But now with Hamlet's explanation and the fact it's just they, they, the last thing he's doing is concentrating on this Shaq match is, is actually makes a lot of sense. And this is where uh, Hamlet, they announced that TNT Championship six-way ladder match, which will feature Cody, Scorpio Sky. Remember him? He's not been around for ages. Uh, and uh, and Penta, of course. For Revolution, uh, Hamlet. It's 2021 and a pandemic has got me justifying Cody Rhodes' indulgences on AW Dynamite. What a time to be alive. Yeah, I thought this was um, 
the sweet and I'm not going to like shoot on it or something like oh god what's he doing I, it's, I, don't, I don't find it like like obnoxious or anything like that it's I'll this is going to sound really generous because I think like wrestling shows more than ever this goes back to the Becky Lynch thing like baby news is when it's nice it's just nice mm. and wrestling shows really need like as much nice as you can get in this current era like lashings of it I'd, I'd take more of it I like the we're pregnant announcement you know, whenever that was, for the same reasons. Um, yeah, it was a bit over the top. If I'm going to be even more generous than this to say that it w- wasn't also part of the build to the Shaq match, I have to accept at this point, and Cedric alluded to this in the very early days of our, what would tantamount to rouse over Cody's promos in the early Dynamite <laughs> days, that as, a, as like a pillar of this company, and there, there, there is a line that you can go to and you can overstep that line. But as a pillar of this company, there is a there is a certain point where this is actually character based for Cody. And I think that I think that extends to this. I'm not going to be harsh on this at all. Cody and Brandy as the sort of the first lady and man of AEW. Like, is this sort of important AEW narrative? Like, I think it might be. Or am I just being too generous? I don't know. Is this just two people that should have really, as with the Orange Cassidy squash, been professionals and found more television time for their wrestlers that need it? Like, I, I don't know. Like, maybe, maybe this is actually part of AEW's story. This is going to sound pretty counterintuitive, considering it was done on TV um, for a headline, if you want to be incredibly cynical about it. I think AEW is incredibly open and embracing to the idea that they want to be the real wrestling promotion with real human beings with a soul to it. Honestly, sometimes that's to the detriment of the action. I think a lot of the commentary is at times a little bit too casual, but I'd prefer that to the incredibly soulless and sterile, shouty marketing catchphrase alternative. I just think this was, people seem to like us. Any kind of warmth is good. This is a company with soul. Let's just share a little bit of it. I honestly think it is. I just think they want to be the nice company, and I just felt nice watching it, and I was happy for these people. Um, it's very TV. As I said, it's counterintuitive because maybe it was strategic for me to think all of this, but I, I liked it. it. took 10 seconds of my life. Yeah. Uh, and that followed, that was followed, sorry, by uh, FTR versus the Sidal brothers, Matt and Mike. Uh Entertaining match, understandably, that the side owls doing mad flippy stuff throughout all this lightning spirals, moonsaults left, right, and center. Uh, but in the end, uh, of course, FTR just just know how to work tag team wrestling. Um, after the, both side owls hit big, big moves, Wheeler gets to the ropes. Harwood makes a blind tag. FTR hit the big rig for the one, two, three. I'm rushing through this because I want to get to the fallout from this. So post-match, FTR get the doctor's medical kit. They're going to cut off Mike Seidel's hair, but then the lights come out. We see the Jurassic Express. Oh, no, sorry. We see Luchasaurus's mask with the horns cut out with the, the shadow of Luchasaurus in the background. Jurassic Express appear. They're in the ring. They beat down FTR uh, and uh, Jungle Boy puts Harwood in his submission as Luchasaurus takes out Wheeler with a choke slam. And subsequent to this, I'm just going to do it all in one go, Michael Sidgwick. We're, we're getting 60, 67-year-old Tully Blanchard wrestling in AEW in what? Two weeks? It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Um, 
cast your mind all the way back to full gear 2019. Tully Blanchard can still do a pile driver better than virtually anyone in pro wrestling, right? All of this is going to build very, very intelligently to Tully Blanchard pile driving Marco's stunt head, maybe even on the apron or something, yeah. or the ring steps. He doesn't even need those superfluous gimmicks. He can just do it right in the pine. They love saying that, don't they? <laughs> Spine on the pine. Put Marco stunts little head on the pine. That's what I'll take. It's fantastic. Like, as I tweeted earlier, like literally in the span of like four days, five days, whatever, they are going to debut in the ring, Shaquille O'Neal and Tully Blanchard and promote a explosion ball by a match. <laughs> class. That's absolutely class. Um, I was expecting to be very high on a tag team match promoted by AEW this week. I didn't expect it to be this. Mm. But I think I like this more. This yeah, is absolutely think- mint. Cash so Wheeler. It, it was a very beautifully constructed match that because you didn't know much about Mike, Mike and Matt Seidel, you didn't expect them at all to win. You just felt like this was going to be a showcase for FTR. This is one of the most fun sprints that completely caught me by surprise that I've ever seen on AEW Dynamite. I thought this was excellent. I thought this was worked so incredibly well. And I think Cash Wheeler is the most underrated wrestler on the goddamn planet. And what I wanted from this was, well, give me Cash Wheeler versus Jungle Boy now. We've seen Harwood versus Jungle Boy. Now I want to see Wheeler versus Jungle Boy. I don't know if he had the little competitive instinct in him, right, where he's looked at the praise that Dax Harwood generated, um, obviously because that performance against Jungle Boy was great. I don't know if he had a little bit in himself to think, ah, no, I'm not the... I'm not, I hate this comparison, but people know it as a shorthand. I'm yeah. not the Ginetti here. Ginetti was actually the better rocker, but never mind. I'm not saying he's the better singles guy, but he was the better, better rocker. Um, but I think Cash Wheeler's went, ah, I'm going to show you what I can do here. And he was electrifying. Like the that uppercut, the, the timing of it, the power of it, the propulsion of it was incredible. That German, like Kurt Angle climbing up the ropes in his prime, like Cash Wheeler was phenomenal in a match that I thought was great. The post match was a bit silly, but it's earned the silliness. The German that came like right before the ad break, which was great because it's just I'd like take a take a breath. Like everybody yeah, yeah. just I don't know what was happening in the fight segment, but it was like just take a goddamn minute. I this banged. I totally agree with Cedric. Preferred this. Just, just gut feeling. Just I knew after it had finished, I was like, "Well, I like that more than the tag title match." Like, it's it's up there as one of my favorite FTR matches in um, AEW. It, you just, I was so buzzed for Mike Seidel because he was great, um, and you have to think that he's going to get a job, and the Seidels make a great tag team. Like Matt Seidel, as much as we like him and we know what he can do, his trajectory is extremely limited in AEW. The Seidels as a tag team, not the same at all. That's a different conversation to have. They're people that, yes, they're going to lose here, but they're a team that I would like happily see rise up the ranks as being a bit older and a bit wiser, perhaps, than some of the younger flying teams, but let that experience be a benefit for them. Mm. Um, just, yeah, tremendous, like super ultra. It's, I think you said the uppercut as well. FTR felt so, like, dangerously physical. They were going to use their anger and their built up aggression to take these two, like, mugs out of the sky. That was how they were going to do it. We've seen that from the Revival before. They're so great. Um, 
more of it here. I liked the um, <laughs> earlier on. I mentioned it didn't occur to me when I was talking about our team Taz, like battering the old guy and the skinnier kid, that we're going to get an older guy and a skinnier kid <laughs> when Tully Blanchard does awful things to Marco Stunt. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, I, I love this angle. This this is my favourite ongoing story in AW. This FTR and Jurassic Express. Um, it was great. It's everything that the you know the art we talked a lot about how the the like. Archer, Death Triangle, Pack, Etiquette. Like all of it seemed so great on paper and then it just didn't seem to come to life when it was realised. This is that. This is obviously brilliant on paper. The old, you know, grizzled old guys come in and want to beat the dinosaur face off the dinosaur. And we're getting it. It's being realised and it's excellent. I cannot wait for the payoff. What's great about this thing as well, and you mentioned that you needed the breather from that German, how it went straight into the commercial break. On my point about Wheeler, I noticed that it was a very, like, snap. Right, okay, we're in break now. I think the referee seemed to silently communicate this to him. Mm. He looked for a split second pissed off. Like, he was just desperate mm. to do more. It's like, oh, Christ, I've got to do the heat now. Like, he's <laughs> bang up for this, and FTR are just in outrageous form at the minute. No, really, really good stuff from them. Uh, right, before we got to the main event, we got a promo. Another great promo from uh, Moxley talking about Eddie Kingston saying he's whoop his ass as many times as he needs to. And of course, what is it? Next week, he's going to be facing Kenta uh, on New Japan Strong for his uh, IWGP United States Championship. And then he was going to set his sights on winning back that AEW world title. He said he will pursue Omega as long as it takes to settle the score, which will obviously feed into the post-match of Moxley, Ray Phoenix and Lance Archer versus Eddie Kingston, the Butcher and the Blade, which came next. What a bonkers match this was. Um, Archer just just taking out everyone. Overhead choke, suplex, running elbows, belly to bellies. And then he goes onto the ropes for his uh, rope walk moonsault. Butcher tries to break it up. Here comes Ray Phoenix. Kicks Butcher out of the way. Archer nails his moonsault. Phoenix, I mean... I feel like I say this every week. Phoenix got a hot tag and ran wild doing mad stuff, basically. That's what happened. Go and watch it because I will not do it justice describing what he did. It ended with a frog splash for a two count, basically. Uh, Kingston comes back and then uh, everyone just hits a big move. They're all out. They're all down. Um, Moxley and Kingston, of course, are the first, first men back up. Moxley locks in the bulldog choke, gets broken up. Archer picks up Phoenix and just throws him onto uh, onto Butcher and Blade. Then it's a, a running cannonball onto the three of them. Poor Ray Phoenix. Oh, cool. Yes, I'll get chokeslammed on someone and then get eat, get hit with your own running cannonball. Okay. Moxley gets hit with a spinning back fist by Eddie Kingston. No sells it. Lariat, paradigm shift. One, two, three. Post-match, of course, here bloody come the good brothers and uh, Omega and Don Callis. And uh, they beat him down and just, just hold him so uh, Omega can shout in his face. He talks about the fact that Moxley had a rematch clause inserted into their contract, says he was pathetic. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a rematch at Revolution in <clears throat> an exploding barbed wire death match. And just as as like a, 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 a signature, as, a, as a, a final point in this insane build, Moxley picture-perfect headbutt on Omega to cause just a little bit of blood to trickle down his face. Uh, and, well, Omega doesn't just sell that. He decides, oh, I'll just V-trigger you then because my two big mates are just holding you uh, and shouts in his face as the show goes off the air. Michael Sidgwick, exploding barbed wire death match. 
I, like you, I had mixed emotions because I went, oh, I'm not getting my fantasy booking because you both convinced me so much. You'd inceptioned me into expecting him to say blood and guts. And then <laughs> my face melted like it was in Indiana Jones or something when he said exploding barbed wire death match. Bonkers, this. God, to talk about the match because there's so much effort and invention in that match that I have to put it over. Like, this was chaos. Like, in a way that I think I preferred the beach break one just because the work was better. I think Phoenix did more spectacular things. But this was like, you know what? I think this is as good in its own way. It felt like just the butcher doing his dives and stuff. It was just oh. such bumbling chaos energy. It felt like an actual fight. Like they were actually up for just killing each other. What I loved about this match, most of all, and it was distilled in one spot, is that I'll watch an AEW Trios match on TV as a main event forever at this point. They've just mastered the art, and it's thrilling to see. My goddamn favourite thing is that this company will just do incredibly creative things and expressive things because it's all for the love of it. It's not just a content production for a wrestling company. It's a group that really wants to just be able to do this thing and do it really well. So at some point, they thought, right, what ridiculous cool thing can we do? That's never been done before. That's perfectly in character. I'm going to choke slam you on two guys, and you're going to do a Piscard or whatever the hell it was. Whatever Phoenix did, that twisting, rotating dive. Like, unbelievable. That's why I watched this program. That is why I watched this TV program. I thought the, the just frantic, great main event. And the announcement of that match, I got in a huff when they announced the face of Revolution Ladder match, right? Because Penta was announced in it. I was like, all right, that's so blood and guts. So I was watching a lot of the shows subsequent to that, trying to fantasy book blood and guts until like the end. Like it's still good, it's still happening, it's still happening. And then I get the ribeye when I wanted the fillet. I mean, I still want the fillet, but that ribeye, it substantiates all of this stuff that John Moxley's been saying for quite a long time at this point about legit killing people. So when Kenny Omega intimated that he was going to reveal a stip, I thought death, death match, death match, death match. I thought, right, okay, it sounds cooler than lights out, I guess, but it still kind of lights out. And then he just revealed the stip. I'm telling you now, I am so high on this. I'm so high on this because the idea is for me anyway, when I first started getting properly into pro wrestling and I stopped buying WWF official magazine from the shops and started buying Power Slam in the UK. Um, American readers, will, the comparison is when he started reading The Observer, mm. but this had pictures in it. And when I first saw pictures of the smoke and the smart and the sparks and the blood of the explosive barbed wire death matches and the Japanese death matches and all these ridiculously convoluted names for death matches, like it blew my mind to bits on a level that I could not reconcile. It's like mind-blowing stuff. Kenny Omega is the most mind-blowing wrestler I've ever watched. Putting those two things together for me is just, I cannot wait for it. I think it could be incredible. And the thing about those pictures, right, is that I've watched them since. The best versions that I get raved about. And they're great in their own way. There's a certain suspenseful art to work in them. And it all pays off and it's all very nice. They never, they never ever meet that expectation of the picture, ever. This one actually can, which is why I'm willing to let them slide for not doing blood and guts, even if a few maybe 
contrived connections were made along the way for the express purpose of doing matches that allow for Mox and Omega to engage physically without giving the match away. Because the idea of Kenny Omega making that picture seared into my brain at 14 years old be as good as the picture promised, it could be one of my favourite things ever in wrestling. I hope Cedric's right. Because um, I got like the total opposite out of this announcement. I lived that exact same existence as a teenager as Cedric did. Same age, um, same sort of move to Power Slam, move to those incredible pictures, move to buying tapes off the primitive dial-up internet and the matches not being anywhere near as exciting as the pictures. The tapes feeling long and drawn out and the selling of the barbed wire feeling, well, either real, so real it was gross, or so delayed that I was taken out at the moment. Um, the stipulation... Like everyone can fire him with a point break jokes if they want. It does nothing for me. Honestly, it does absolutely nothing for me. Blood and guts. It's really hard to explain the differences between why, say, like a blood and guts double cage, something over there makes total sense in a way that I can enjoy versus an exploding barbed wire death match. Not least when I didn't like the last Omega Moxley hardcore match. Um, I will give it credit for a certain elegance that some of the spots employed. Uh, it would be unfair to do it down and to say that there weren't some things that match that they put an awful lot of thought into. And I had a, an appreciation after the fact for some of those spots, but I didn't like it when I was watching it. I was, I was repeatedly taken out of the match. Um, they tend to, and again, uh, I'm not criticising as so much because it hasn't happened yet. It's not fair of me to say this match won't be any good, but poorly worked. A lot of them are walking to the next thing, doing the thing, selling the thing. What's going to be the next thing? Sometimes they get the graduating pain scale wrong. So it's like, well, that thing would have hurt way more than this next thing. You're going to get some big... I don't, I don't think this can fail, objectively. Yeah. I think... Kenny Omega. It's Kenny yeah, Omega. Kenny Omega will have some incredible ideas from it. John Moxley will too. John Moxley will be willing to give his body to the course, as will Omega, to be fair to him, yeah. Um, it will look tremendous. It will look great. It will be... This is the Tony Khan from the wrestling forums, isn't it? getting to use his money to create those pictures and those videos that we bought on his own stage. So it will look tremendous. Um, I wasn't high, not because I wanted blood and guts instead, but because I am yet to, like, I need to see the evidence. I need to see this work on the night before I can enjoy it. I won't enjoy this particularly in anticipation. I will enjoy it in execution. Um, in terms of the match itself, I really, really enjoyed it in execution. I thought this was better than the match last week. I think it, I think it was marginally better than the beach break match as well. And especially in contrast to last week's end of the show, Wild Brawl, the X Factor is very clearly Phoenix. They are doing, and like it's, I can't believe I'm saying this quietly, considering the stuff he does in, in these matches. They are doing a fantastic job of quietly building Ray Phoenix up as the next babyface AW champion after Hangman Page. Honestly, I believe that. I think he's jumped. I think he's jumped in front of Jungle Boy in the queue. I think you see Hangman Page, you see a heel, and I'm struggling to look past anyone other than Ray Phoenix. And I think it's been done by design. He is having, and like I think he's having the best year of anybody in AEW. Mm. It's the way he maximizes his minutes and his skills so perfectly agented to in these tag matches. And I got more out of Ray Phoenix's work than I did exploding bar by a death match. But I do have faith in the wrestlers and this company showing me like the proof of concept. But I, I wasn't high on this as the revolution main event. I'm kind of in between the both of you, typically, uh, here. Uh, I I really enjoyed the Lights Out match at Full Gear that you were talking about, Sidge. My concern it. is, 
my concern is, well, they've done it. What do they do now? But I equally have faith in Kenny Omega and Moxley. I just really hope for the return of that, the alcohol gel. Because that was the thing that's made me wince more out of anything, out of everything that they've done, all the mad bumps and all the slicing and dicing and glass and barbed wire and stuff. That spot with the the alcohol gel with Eddie Kingston went through me. So I, I, I don't want to say morbid fascination because morbid fascination is the phrase that I use where I'm like, oh, this match might be a bit crap or a bit all over the place when it comes to like a WWE pay-per-view. But I am, you know, excited for it. I, I don't know what to expect, uh, but I'll give them benefit of the doubt. And I, I sense, Sid, you and I are probably going to be sitting down over this weekend and chatting a little bit more about the potential of a barbed wire death match. Yes, absolutely. I want sorry, to, sorry, I want to read through my thoughts. How, how, how wrong yeah. of me. And not a barbed wire death match. An exploding barbed wire death match. An exploding barbed wire death match. I just think that if they can somehow contrive, and if anyone can do it, Kenny Omega can, mm. to realise the promise of those pictures, this could be one of the best things I've ever seen. One final thing then to do, uh, and that is decide who won the Wednesday Night War this week. Uh, who did your vote for? go for, Michael Sidgwick? Uh, quite predictably, I thought this Dynamite was ace. Dynamite for me. Hamlet? Um, Average week for both shows for me, and Dynamite always wins the average weeks. Uh, I enjoyed both shows uh, for varying different reasons. I've, I've slightly tweaked the vote, but this doesn't really change anything because I've, I've thought with you guys having occasionally picked draw, I'll give the, I'll give our listeners that view. And and there was some financial irregularity uh, with what culture this week uh, may have been, you know, someone the, the person who was maybe helping out last week dealing with other issues. Regardless, we will stick with the Twitter vote for this week. Uh, and that goes to AEW Dynamite. So a clean sweep for AEW Dynamite. But do let us know your thoughts on both shows on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Watch, they can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflit at Michael Hamflit. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at M. Sidgwick. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WWE. Make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, uh, including our previews and reviews of the Wednesday Night War. And inevitably, it seems, over the weekend, myself and Michael Sidgwick getting very giddy about an exploding barbed wire death match. But this has been the review of AEW Dynamite. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon.